This is the SF Productions Podcast Network. How I Got My Wife to Read Comics Episode 629 Can a comic book collector of over 30 years get his wife to read them? Will she let him keep them? Learn more in this podcast. Let's go to the comic book lounge with Mindy and Mark. Alan gets the treatment, world's finest film stories, Fire runs a reality show from a cave, and JLI 101. This is How I Got My Wife to Read Comics for Sunday, December 10th, 2023. I'm Mark. And I'm Mindy. Just remind you to go to sfpodcastnetwork.com to get our feed, other SF podcasts and blogs, or you can subscribe in your favorite podcast catcher and maybe leave us a review. You can email sfpodcastnetwork at gmail.com, like us at facebook.com slash sfppn, check out Instagram at sfpodnetwork, or call us at 614-321-9737. That's 614-321-9SFP. Alan Scott, Green Lantern, number two of six by Sheridan, Torme, and Herms. The exploration and revamping of the Golden Age hero continues. But we begin in 1941. G.L. and Doiby Dickles are in an alley. Alan is searching for the killer with his costume, and Doiby is carrying the lantern as Alan wants it with him at all times. In 1937, Alan is awoken by his roommate, Billy. Alan was having nightmares again, calling for Johnny. They are at Arkham Asylum. Well... Alan is from Gotham. He's voluntarily committed himself there because of the voices in his head and his deviance. Alan has been established as a gay character, and that was not accepted at the time, to say the least. Billy is perceived as an older man, but identifies as a woman. Arkham is doing some experimental methods, imagine that, which could help them. While in a group session, they watch as a black man is dragged away to receive the new method. Billy built Alan a gift in Metal Shop. It's the lantern. Billy has no idea why he made it. The metal spoke to him. Billy does mention that things were bleak before Alan's light arrived. Alan continues to torture himself over Johnny's death, wearing the gold ring he was given. He states that once he's cured and leaves, he's going to marry the first woman he sees. Billy doesn't buy it. Back to 1941, Alan realizes that Billy was just trying to warn him. Doiby asks him to tell more of the story, saying that the killer seems to know a lot about Alan. Back in 1937, Billy seems to disappear for a week. He returns post-treatment. It seems to be a lobotomy, turning his brain to mush. Now his family will accept Mr. Billings. Alan writes his thoughts in his journal, and the asylum doctors use this info to change his voluntary state to involuntary. He's dragged off to the treatment as well. He and the other deviants break out of the asylum, and Alan goes to work at the railroad. 1939. After some quick hand-waving by the author, Alan, I guess, manages the railroad, has a management position. Who knows? It was very hard to determine. And very quick to happen. He meets a new love, Jimmy Hinton. It's clear that Jimmy reminds Alan of Johnny. He's got a railroad competitor, Albert Decker, who decides to put him out of business permanently. A bridge is rigged to explode, and as Alan and Jimmy kiss, the lantern starts to glow. The bridge blows, 
Jimmy is apparently killed, and Alan is as well, before the green light envelops him. Turns out there's a flip side to the crimson flame that killed Johnny, the emerald flame of life, and this is the source of his power. 1941, Alan sees his whole life leading to this moment. Every time Alan Scott gets close to someone, a lover, a friend, even an enemy, something, someone, takes them from him. But I'm not just Alan Scott. I'm the Green Lantern, and I'm going to stop them. We cut to a man in the sky who is clearly the Red Lantern established in the new JSA books. Here's two new books telling tales of the world's finest in their film incarnations. Superman 78, The Metal Curtain, number two of six, by Venditti, Guidry, and Belair, and Batman 89, Echoes, number one of six, by Ham, Canones, and Ito. The first issue of the Christopher Reeve-era miniseries already established that the Soviet Union used a chunk of kryptonite to create their own super soldier, Metallo. Now he's off to create a crisis that Clark will need to handle. He attacks an Air Force plane. While this is going on, Superman has brought Lois to the fortress for two purposes. First, to meet his parents, now in the bottle city of Candor, and tell her a secret. Based on the dialogue, this is after the events in Superman 2. Lois doesn't remember that she has already visited the fortress and that she did know the secret, thanks to the hokey super kiss at the end of that movie. He gets the first part going while, with Lois interviewing Jor-El and Laura, she does so from outside the bottle. Just as he goes to change into Clark, he gets an alert with super hearing and flies off. And the rest of the issue is an action scene. Soup saves the plane, Metallo attacks him, Clark is weakened by the kryptonite-powering Metallo, who wipes the floor with him, leaving Clark unconscious in the water. There's also a mysterious shot of Lois at the fortress holding her head. Now, someone online pointed out that the pilot's call sign was Highball, which happens to be the same as Hal Jordan, and it does sort of look like him. Hmm. Over in Michael Keaton country, we see that faux Batmen are trying to become vigilantes and getting killed doing so. This is because Batman has disappeared for two years after events in the last mini. Commissioner Gordon, that's Barbara Gordon, keeps checking the dead vigilantes in the morgue just to make sure that Bruce has kept his bargain. He stays off duty and Bab doesn't reveal his ID. But the new vigilante issue is a problem, so she goes to Wayne Manor to talk to Bruce. He's out, per Alfred. Turns out Bruce disappeared a month ago. Meanwhile, at a local TV station, an interviewer is talking to an ex-mistress of the now-dead Joker. Next up... Dr. Q, a.k.a. Dr. Harleen Quinzel, apparently being played by Madonna. She uses persona therapy, dressing up in a secret face to work with violent clients so that they will open up to her. She's on to talk about being the late Joker's muse. Just as the interview begins, a news bulletin comes in. U.S. Marshals are closing in on Firefly in the nearby woods. Dr. Q is incensed about being interrupted. Yeah, I wonder where that's going to lead. After a military battle, Firefly is caught, and he turns out to have a huge arm stash. Firefly is assigned to Arkham, now being run by Dr. Jonathan Crane. Dr. Hugo Strange is unavailable. He meets with Firefly, a.k.a. Robert Lowry, who's revealed to be... Is it Bruce? Is this all a plan to get into Arkham? By the way, Robert Lowry is one of the actors who played Batman in the movie serials. (laughs) 
Fire and Ice, Welcome to Smallville, number four, by Starer, Bustos, and Bonvillian. Ice and Rocky clean up the mess left after last issue at the salon. The villains have been sent to the Kawachi Caves, which is a callback to the Smallville CW series, with Crypto gardening them. Fire is still trying to run her internet reality show with confessionals and physical challenges in the cave. A new competitor shows up. It's Lobo. Fire and Lobo duke it out, and it becomes clear there's more going on with them than may have originally been suspected. (laughs) This is interrupted by Martha Kent, who gets Fire and Ice to meet at a drag brunch in town. Seems like Smallville is is very uh, hip. Yes. And it seems they will come to terms before Rocky enters the discussion. They are all kicked out for their ruckus, only to find protesters outside, including Miss Congeniality. How did she get out of the cave? Fire punches out Miss Congeniality, and Martha gives up on reconciling them. Oh, and there's that whole cannibal thing still going on. The villains are loose, thanks to Honey's mind control abilities. It also works on Kryptonian dogs. Honey's smooching with Tam. No mind control going on there. Fire and Lobo go off to be alone, as it were. Ice and Rocky go to the bar to talk it out. Well, the problem with dropping the mainline ongoing DC stuff in my poll is that now the poll waxes and wanes. Mm -hmm. Last episode, there were so many comics, we had to do a lightning round. And this time, there were all of four comics over two weeks. So we're going to jump off the Fire and Ice title to talk about the group that inspired comics like this. JLI 101. First off, we would be remiss without talking about one of the creatives who brought the JLA to life, Keith Giffen, who just recently passed away. They were actually tributes in the most recent DC issues. Giffen created or co-created a huge list of characters. Rocket Raccoon, as seen in Guardians of the Galaxy. Lobo, as just seen in this Fire and Ice issue the Jaime Reyes Blue Beetle, who just had his own DC film, and Ambush Bug, one of my favorite characters. Giffen had a long run on Legion of Superheroes, including the volume that modernized the otherwise goofy group. He was also heavily involved in DC events of the 2000s. Giffen was both a writer and artist, and he will be missed. But we're here to talk about the JLI. It all began after the events of Crisis on Infinite Earths. DC Comics wanted to slim down the complex continuity with the goal to have a single Earth. Once that was in place, there was an edict to keep things simple, and that meant that teams such as the Justice League could not use major players who had their own books and storylines. This actually harkens back to the Golden Age and the JSA. There was an unwritten rule that once a character got their own book, they were ejected from the Justice Society and new members replaced them. That's why Superman and Batman were honorary members, for instance. So when a new league was formed, spinning out of the Legends event, it was made clear that none of the members could have existing storylines. The original team was composed of... Batman, which breaks the rule, but he was only there for a few issues to get things established. Black Canary, the Ted Cord Blue Beetle, Captain Marvel, Dr. Fate, Dr. Light, Kamiko Hoshi, who was a new character from Crisis on Infinite Earths, Guy Gardner, Martian Manhunter, and Mr. Miracle with Big Barda and Oberon. 
Guy basically stepped in and declared himself the new leader of the JLA until Batman overruled him. Dinah left quickly, replaced by Green Flame and Ice Maiden from the Global Guardians. They renamed themselves Fire and Ice. After a few issues, entrepreneur Max Lord steps in and gets the UN to authorize funding and control of Justice League International. We later learn that Max has mental powers, allowing him to control events. The U.S. and the USSR insist on having their own members, so Captain Adam and Rocket Red, a new character, are added to the mix. Max brings in Booster Gold as a new member. The U.N. sets up JLI embassies around the world, emphasizing it's no longer the Justice League of America. And this storyline runs for five years, with the League fighting both major and very minor villains. And this is where the bwahaha phrase comes from. There's a lot more humor and character moments, and in many issues, there's hardly any heroism going on. Blue and Gold get the League into all sorts of trouble, including the ownership of a resort on the island of Kui Kui Kui. We learn that Martian Manhunter has a weakness for Chacos, a.k.a. Oreos. Other members through the years are Hawkman and Hawkwoman, Huntress, Light Ray and Orion of the New Gods, General Glory, Tasmanian Devil, Maxima, Ray, Black Condor, Agent Liberty, Bloodwind, who is actually Martian Manhunter in disguise, and Jay the Flash. The League expands into a second group and title called Justice League Europe from the same creative team, comprised of Captain Atom, Elongated Man, Power Girl, the Wally West Flash, Rocket Red, Animal Man, Metamorpho, Crimson Fox, Blue Jay and the Silver Sorceress of the Champions of Angor, and any similarity to the Avengers is completely coincidental, and Maya. I think that Justice League Europe was my favorite. I <laughs> really think back fondly to, like, Crimson Fox. She was twins, and right. it was really interesting. Mm-hmm. There were other titles, the Justice League Task Force, where John acts as a leader of specific heroes chosen for various jobs. Extreme Justice, maybe brought to you by Surge, I don't know. And even uh, Justice League Antarctica one-shot with a group of minor villains and Green Lantern Nort. Eventually, the creative team wrapped things up in an event called Breakdowns, and the title morphed back into a standard league team. The JLI concept would return, first in a miniseries called Formerly Known as the Justice League, then in a miniseries called Justice League Generation Lost, which came out of the Blackest Night event. There was also a run of JLA Classified called I Can't Believe It's the Justice League. During the New 52, a JLI team was formed, run directly by the UN, featuring many of the original JLIers. Finally, the JLI returned in the recent DC Black Label Human Target title. There's even an episode of the Batman Brave and the Bold cartoon where Bruce pulls together a ragtag group of heroes to fight Darkseid, which happened to be the best-known JLIers. Announcerbot, how can the folks find us online? Go to sfpodcastnetwork.com to get the feed, other SF podcasts, and blogs. Subscribe via your favorite podcast catcher and leave us a review. You can email sfpodcastnetwork at gmail.com. Like us at facebook.com slash sfppn. Check out Instagram at sfpodnetwork. Call us at 614-321-9737. That's 614-321-9SFP. 
back to you, Mark. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.